What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzek, and welcome to a new season, a new semester of Untenure Tracks. This is episode 16 of the show overall. This week, I'm talking to Sarah Harper from the University of South Florida, where she's working on her PhD in criminology. Sarah and I spent a lot of time talking about her research this week on people who have, um, let's say, a very enthusiastic approach to the legal system. This is episode 16 of Untenure Tracks. in the courts and different things that go on there, but primarily my focus is on non-attorney participation. Mm -hmm. Um, Not necessarily like victims, but as self-represented litigants or families of defendants attempting to interact with courts. And so uh, essentially you've had this surge over the last 20 or 30 years of self-representation in not only criminal court, but in a lot of civil matters. And in fact, a majority of cases in small claims court and um, different kinds of civil torts are self-represented, at least one party. So while most of the time you've got people who understand what's going on to a certain extent, and they're trying to play by the rules, you also have very difficult people who are, um, you know, they there's a mental illness component to some of them and then other people are literally using this form of relief for some as a weapon to harass or demean or intimidate other parties and this can be it kind of reminds me of how like the majority of crimes are committed by a small percentage of people while um one of my articles i literally just cited last night Um, I think it was in Massachusetts where uh, only five individuals accounted for about 300 some odd cases alone. And so when you've got these um, hyper litigious individuals, it can place an undue burden on courts that don't have the time or resources to tend to them. And, you know, they have a by matter of, you know, constitutional right, they have access to the courts. But much like freedom of speech, there are limitations, and there should be, where it's encroaching on the liberties of others. So I'm interested in, you know, there have been very broad bits of research on uh, self-representation in the courts, a lot of it in, like, law reviews, and um, in terms of legal system abuse, so as an element of coercive control and intimate partner violence. But never like it's always individualized so it's on uh mental health like querulous paranoia or it's on um the coercive control legal system abuse or vexatious litigants but never kind of trying to say okay what's the difference or similarities among these groups and can we develop early detection to be like 
oh boy, we might have one of these people on our hands and maybe sort of divert the appropriate uh, resources their direction, such as self-help clinics or um, or even like mental health evaluations in some cases or uh, protections in place where you limit their access. Okay. Um, so a couple of questions right away. Um, why do you think there has been this, this upsurge in self-representation? Well, there's, uh, namely the internet, honestly. Um, so you've got all these how-to guides of, you know, templates of what to file. And these things are accessible not only because of what the clerks of court do, but also, you know, you have other people putting out like, hey, I did this and got custody on my kid. And, um, and then uh, it, it doesn't go like that usually, but... Um, but then you have also the rising cost of attorneys, you know, yeah. sometimes they run 200 bucks an hour with a $5,000 retainer, mm-hmm. you know, that, that can be extremely expensive. And so, you know, we do have certain things on the books that, so like there's this, uh, principle called the liberal construction of pro se pleadings, where essentially a judge doesn't necessarily hold them to the same standards that an attorney would be, um, so, you know, maybe they misinterpret case law or they file the wrong document or something like that. There's a little bit more leeway there. So I, I think a lot of it is is just cost and now accessibility and do-it-yourselfness and <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> the American way of the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sounded like a, almost like a BuzzFeed thing, right? Like 13 <laughs> steps to, to win custody of your child. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> It's, um, but there are all kinds of like, um, if you look, just blogs. I, I'm trying not to make an Arrested Development reference to Bob Blah Blah's <laughs> Law Blog. <laughs> I referenced Bob Blah Blah's Law Blog in the in class the other day, um, like totally deadpanned it, um, and and the students didn't react, of course. And then I I looked at this kid, this student. I shouldn't say kid. I'm trying to get out of that habit. I looked at this student who has has this reputation in there of kind of being like a class clown type and always reacting to my jokes. And I, and I looked at, he gave me like this weird look and I was like, you haven't heard of Bob blah, blah. And he's like, no, I haven't. Dr. Wilzak. I was like, you should write that down and look it up. And he's like, I will. And so he like in his notes, wrote down Bob blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why should you get in trouble for something somebody else noticed? noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love Bob blah, blah, blah. That is easily, um my favorite Arrested Development reference to make. Other than that, I just constantly hear the Peanuts theme in my head. <laughs> well, when you... <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to mention, or ask about, I guess, when you said that there are these people who are hyper-litigious and you're talking about ways to um, to kind of divert them, the first thing that I thought about was um, The Office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> When they, when they, uh, Ryan Howard gives Creed his own website, but it's really just a blank word file (laughs) and, and it's just Creed thoughts and it's just him to like Creed's publishing all the truths that he knows about the world, but it's all just (laughs) a a word doc on his computer. Like it sounds not completely dissimilar from what you're running into. So I, working on um, a completely different project, so it's a, I'm a research assistant on an NIJ-funded grant project that I've been really privileged to be a part of, 
and well so we're going through court files and of course florida has very broad public records laws uh we call it the sunshine law because mm-hmm. why not um <laughs> and it, i i've gotten access to some of these pro se pleadings and of course i download them because you know personal interest and in being nosy and so you read them and you know, there are certain elements in there where they're like, okay, they're using some of the language of the law and they're greeting the judge, doing it, and then it just goes south from there. <laughs> Hang on, my, my dog is having a time over there. Oh, that's um, okay. And so, so it starts kind of going south from there. And I mean, they're writing all over the margins and it's um, all kinds of just bizarre things that normally you would think have no place in in a court setting and um you know there there are instances where people like draw on like sovereign citizens i don't know if you're familiar with the am i being detained people (laughs) um but they'll they'll cite the fact that the flag and the court has a fringe on it and therefore it's a maritime flag therefore they're not held to the same laws and they don't have the authority and so some of it like (laughs) you're kind of following and then suddenly no (laughs) and there's a maritime law joke in there too exactly somewhere (laughs) and i mean you know sometimes they'll they'll uh there's actually a, a um a remarkable amount of research that comes out of like England and Australia and New Zealand about these difficult litigants where they'll start suing, you know, it'll escalate to different levels of authority and they'll start like suing the queen or they're, they're suing the president. And I I don't know if you're familiar, like there's a a rule that if you want to sue a person in authority, usually they have, um, <laughs> this is an interview okay. for all the dog lovers of the show. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> he's um, he's my jealous little brother. But um, <laughs> so usually they, it, 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 at least in the United States, the government essentially has to agree for you to sue them, and okay. so you have to file notice and give, like in Florida, I think it's like six months notice before you can sue the state. Uh huh. Um, so these things get drawn out for years and years and can cost actually an alarming amount of money. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. Um, like, so one of the more, uh, unique instances of the difficult, like, or misuses of litigation, you've got, um, actually one of my friends, Drew Drew Curtis gave a Ted talk about it, um, called patent trolls. Mm-hmm. where they essentially file intellectual property violations and the onus is on the person they're suing to prove they have not violated this IP like uh, patent or what uh-huh. have you and so rather than go through the expensive litigation they'll just settle out so okay. they go after people like Google or Microsoft or yeah. um, Reddit even <laughs> and uh, but they went after my friend's website it's a mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so sorry. Um, it's totally anyway, fine. So, so they went after my friend's website, and he he very notoriously like you know uh, told them no, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to settle for this. I'm actually going to go through with it, and they um, and they agreed to no money, which was nice. But wow. but that's not how it works for everyone. So if it's mm-hmm. a small business and they get sued, they drop it, um, yeah. and they're they're going to 
drop it by settling and signing a non-disclosure agreement. Hmm. So, so the ways that this venue of what's supposed to be refuge is being misused is, um, it can be upsetting, <laughs> we'll say. Yeah. So do you see people who are, um, how do I want to frame this question? People who really are powerless, who, um, are kind of swept aside or aren't really getting the treatment that they, they should be, or the court's not working for them the way that it should be because of people who are hyper litigious, like making so much noise and taking up all the time. Absolutely. So, um, I believe, I want to say the citations like Douglas 2018 and she described, uh, legal system abuse or paper abuse where it's intimate partner violence cases where the victim is attempting to gain custody of their children or housing. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of like, int- just very invasive interrogatories and depositions and forcing them to come back into court, it's secondary victimization. And yeah. it has been studied for example, in actual crime victims, I mean, intimate partner violence is a crime, it's, but in criminal court, it's um, studied as a secondary victimization. And so there's, um, I think one of the articles that um, that I have, uh, that I read very recently, is called like, it's like I was being choked out again mm-hmm. by the system. Mm-hmm. And where judges or or court staff like their hands are tied essentially in terms of what they are are not allowed to do and in florida at least if you want sanctions or to be able to restrict somebody's access to the court they have uh, their magic number is five so the statute requires that a person has five finally disposed cases uh, or adversely disposed cases within a span of five years, mm-hmm. but that doesn't include family law cases. And so, of course, family law includes a lot of domestic relations, and the domestic violence injunctions fall in that category. So these can go on and on and and be very um, just... it's such an uncomfortable experience for Mm -hmm. a victim to constantly have to encounter their abuser in court and be forced to answer their questions, especially when their abuser is Mm self-representing. And I mean, it's enough to make people back down from trying to pursue what they absolutely should have is in the best interest of their children Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, they need to survive. And, I mean, the law alone, it, it, on its own, is complex and confusing. But mm-hmm. then you add the fact that it's hard to get that protection um, from that form of abuse is disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so you said that you're studying this this non-attorney participation very broadly. Um, mm-hmm. Is this sort of just like a grounded theory kind of approach? Like you just want to see what what the whole scope of this participation looks like, or do you have anything specifically that you're looking for or. So in game goal Mm -hmm. is I I want to affect some sort of policy or bench book or something Mm -hmm. where whether it's victim advocates or judges or clerks have this like itemized checklist where they're like, if you have this and this and this, you may want to start doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and so in order to do that, of course, we need to be able to identify certain common features mm-hmm. of these types of people, whether it means that it's all at once or it's 
multiple groups of them. So my like dream dissertation is, um, does anyone really have a dream dissertation? Um, you should. So I, other than a nightmare dissertation. <laughs> well, no. So I can, I can reflect back on doing it okay. and, and say like, there's stuff that I wish I would have pushed back against with my <laughs> advisor. So chase your dream dissertation. Okay. So, <laughs> chase it. So if I can make it happen, I do want to see if they're, um, do some sort of latent class analysis or do uh-huh. some sort of, uh, strategy to see if there are ways that, um, certain types of litigants are similar and dissimilar. And if maybe the nature of the pleadings, like certain language they use or certain features, um, one of the querulous paranoia articles talks about how they're, Pleadings may have lots of capitalization and bold and underline and highlight and like really antiquated case law and um, extensive footnotes. <laughs> so like if I can combine all of those and see what we've got, you know, the what's uh, frustrating about Florida as much as they've got um, their public records law, the Florida Supreme Court maintains their vexatious litigant um registry. So like if you get declared a vexatious litigant under that statute I mentioned earlier, you get put on the registry <laughs> so that other counties and circuits in Florida can identify you. And then also your access to the court is limited. You have to retain an attorney in good standing to file something for you or seek leave of the court. Well, California has it where you can look it up online. And since I want to say it was like 1994 mm-hmm. is when they instituted it. And since that time, they have well over 2,000 people and entities on that list. Mm-hmm. And so if I have to look at California's data instead of Florida, yeah. um, then I would like to try to do that and see if, if we can um, figure out if there are things they have in common, things that are different. Yeah. So that kind of leads to my next question. Um, have you been in touch with any, like legislators or anybody in in local government just to be like hey here's this idea um Um, this is who i am (laughs) so there's uh there are scholars i know that they're researching it and for the most part like i've talked to attorneys and like my the community that i've been in for the Mm -hmm. last 10 years so i'm i live in tampa now but um, in the area where it was before, and they talk about them like they're kind of a joke, but no one's really solidified this. Well, what can mm-hmm. we do about them other than forward around their uh, their stuff and laugh? And um, and I know that there are some uh, groupings of scholars that are looking at it, but honestly, uh-huh. it, it's not really struck the interest of legislators except in like. 2002, I think, yeah. there was a Florida Senate brief about uh, it, and then nothing. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking about it in terms of, like, how do you how do you get to that end game, right? Where, the mm-hmm. like, the judges sitting there have this checklist of how to best manage these um, hyper-litigious people. Right. And, and, and you get that so, in their hands by working with the legislators, right? So, I and, and framing it in terms of cost, too, um, you know, a lot of these litigants, they file as indigent. So, mm-hmm. Um, in the state of Florida, and I'm sure you can do it in other states, you can file an affidavit of indigency basically saying, I'm poor. And this is good for a lot of people because it waives the court fees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in order to get divorced in Florida, it costs at least between 300 and 400 dollars 
just to file unless mm-hmm. you file an affidavit of indigency, you're determined to be indigent. And so all of these things go unpaid. Yeah. So if I can frame it in terms of a cost uh-huh. thing, I feel like it could get a little more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is definitely a next step for me is to on the path towards my dissertation is to be in contact with clerks of court and, um, and other judicial entities. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would just I would make as much noise as <laughs> as you can, can with cool. with every legislator. I mean, at the at the state level, you know that you can get, um, you know, probably up to and including like the lieutenant governor. Like, oh yeah, you may as well. It's I I can send the letter pretty well, but I I think that you know with. Um, so, so right now, our uh, attorney general, I think, is possibly like yeah. one of the best places to start because, um, you know, that's where the legislation came from, where we got that registry about opioids and yeah. you know, um, logging things at pharmacies. So they they do take action. I guess it's it's once I get things solidified, then to mm-hmm. move towards. Um, contacting people that can do the thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, I've gotten really interested myself in like trying to bridge social science research into mm-hmm. policy and and finding ways to do that for myself locally has been immensely frustrating. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, I think I've learned a lot, right? And one of the things that I've learned doing it is that you need to be extremely loud. <laughs> <laughs> and uh persistent and um for better or worse bipartisan like go after everybody and you know so um i i think it definitely is something that could it it's easy to be nonpartisan about this issue yeah. too because it's not just a, a right or left wing mm-hmm. matter it's literally the, this is You've got small businesses that suffer from it. You've got individuals who are, you know, whether they're victims of IPV or you've got just private citizens just being harassed. Mm -hmm. And I think it definitely is something that can echo across both aisles or all three if we decided to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and also, like, depending on what kind of corporate lobby exists exists Mm -hmm. down there, like. I'm sure there are some guys who are bought and paid for who would be like, yeah, this is great. Like, <laughs> this means that Google stops having to settle, like, these trivial yeah. things for a few grand here and there. And that means that money can now go into my pocket and, mm-hmm. <laughs> my, I, I, and everybody I, I wins. Know, so, so the benefit of having my buddy Drew as kind of a mentor for me, mm-hmm. um, he... You know, I've seen the things he's done with like large media um, groups where he's gotten the story out there. And then because his website, can I like plug his website because I'm weird? No, it's <laughs> it's fine. Okay. So, so he runs a website called FARC.com. It's F-A-R-K. It's yep. a news comedy site. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Are you a FARC? Oh, no, I'm, I'm well aware of FARC. I'm just appreciating, like, I wish I could go back in time, like. 10 years or so and be like one day you're going to have this podcast that 300 people maybe 350 now have downloaded and somebody's going to be like can i plug fark 
And then you're like, of course. I will, out of the goodness of my heart for Drew Curtis, I will be so happy to help help out the smaller guy out there. I just hope he remembers this. I, 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 I'm going to have to text him after this and be like, I'm sorry. I said nice things about you. Um, <laughs> it, 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 he'll say he denies all wrongdoing. But no, I've been a part of FARC for 15 years. And actually, literally the reason I'm in grad school is because I met somebody at a FARC party. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> um, so the power of the Internet. Um so anyway, but Drew was in contact with, with people who were able to lobby and there was some legislation or, or some action taken. Actually, the Obama administration mm-hmm. took some action uh, regarding patent trolls. And what's interesting is they're all in this one small area of East Texas um, really? where all these cases get filed. Um, there are a couple of documentaries on it. I highly encourage you to look up the patent troll issue. Um, do you do you know any of the titles of those documentaries off the top of your head? Uh, not off the top of my head. Okay, they're on Hulu. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. I, I will. I'm going to make a note to to ask you later. Okay, deal. <laughs> deal. It's um, but you know they talk about you know the relationship between the the patent trolls that file these cases and then the judges who are overseeing them and there's an interesting twist to the story there but um it's all uh, around like tyler texas which uh-huh. actually is kind of close to where i grew up <laughs> but but yeah they uh, um i i wish i could remember the exact stat but it's it's several billion dollars are tied up in in these patent lawsuits and they just it keep filing them and filing so every time there's a settlement they funnel it into a new case and every time they get another settlement funnel into three more so it's it it takes its toll and um so as Overall, what these types of situations do is it lowers people's perceptions of, you know, what the courts are able to do. Yeah. Um, I, I did a proposed policy uh, evaluation for one of my classes on um, procedural justice and um, assistance for self-represented litigants, basically, you know, ways that the court can do different forms of assistance. So like uh, templates and forms or little clinics or um, individual motion by motion legal assistance mm-hmm. because the clerks aren't allowed to give you directions on them because they're not attorneys. Yeah. And so um, there are a couple of studies where even having um, access to the forms online has enhanced, um, you know, efficiency, even for self-represented litigants. And they're less likely to file the wrong thing or take too much time out of, you know, what the court is trying to do. <laughs> uh-huh. It's, so I'm just, I'm, I'm teaching a class on revolutions this semester. And one of the things that like the social theory and revolutions talks about is, how like there are all these conditions right that are necessary for this massive change to happen and mm-hmm. one of the one of them is this like disconnect or misperception in how the law works by like mm-hmm. ordinary people versus how the law really works and like the more i guess like the bigger the misperceptions gets or like the more ways that the system is visibly <laughs> broken the angrier yeah. people get 
And um, I think that's like a, a really good example, right? Of like we, a lot of people, I think, have this idea of this is what the court is supposed to do. But then mm-hmm. I imagine that if I went into class on Monday, um, snowstorm notwithstanding, <laughs> uh, oh. and was like, <laughs> uh, how many billions of dollars do you guys think like is tied up in courts every year from people filing these baseless claims against like every every major corporation and that everything just gets settled out of court and and all of this stuff um i think they would be i think they would be mad and then i think the first thing they would do would be to make a joke about like who can we sue <laughs> yeah right, <laughs> right. sue the pants off of someone yeah yep <laughs> and i i think also like when you frame it that so I got interested in this through my own like personal litigation history. We'll we'll call it that. Um, Your own and, frivolous IP and, lawsuits against. <laughs> I, mean, I have not been doing that. It, it has struck my mind because I'm a brute college student. But yeah, <laughs> um, a trip and fall at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> you actually took but, down Napster. It's it's okay to. to... Exactly. And, so when people think of like tort reform, of course, the mm-hmm. the infamous McDonald's coffee yep. story comes up. And the good news is the, the pushback on that is that was actually a very legitimate lawsuit. Yes. And McDonald's was in the wrong, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you do have very frivolous narratives and it, it's built into the cost of doing business for some of these companies. So mm-hmm. like slip and falls, um, you know, my my stepfather and my mom used to be in the commercial real estate business, and so they just sort of built it always into their budget of if someone falls in the parking lot and they sue, cool, five grand, bye. Yeah. And it's not that they don't care. It's just that in the end, they'll probably have to give the money anyway rather yeah. than paying attorneys, et cetera, to go to court. You settle it out. Mm-hmm. And it's not to be heartless. That's just, you know, that – helps get the person where they need to go, whether mm-hmm. they were at fault or not. And, but then other frivolous lawsuits, like they can be dismissed if they're going up against a, you know, a, up against an actual attorney <laughs> who, who knows <laughs> kind of what they're doing. Cause attorneys are bound by their ethics, you know, mm-hmm. professional ethics, if they don't want to lose their license and be sanctioned. Um, and sometimes even attorneys won't file things. So yeah. they, they step back from it and you know, you've got, you can't really do a motion to dismiss on a divorce. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, but you know, you, so there's a certain direction that things need to take. And in order to sort of combat this, they, they require mediation for some, uh, some situations where you've mm-hmm. got two self-represented, but mediation's expensive too, as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I mean, yes, they're trying to do things to help, but the the fact is that some of these cases can go on for years and years, and it just gets so tiring that the other party just gets worn down and and gives up. Yeah. Like, throughout this entire conversation, I've been wondering, like, what's the simplest solution to this problem? Like, to me, it seems like a Gordian knot, right? Like every, Mm. we know that the legal system is massively complex and way more complicated than I think ordinary people imagine from, from all the law and order marathons and stuff. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) yeah. Um, 
but with with this problem with like hyper litigious people and and everything that that involves like do you think there's a simple solution is it is it providing a checklist to like filter out people who may have mental health problems who may be doing this for like really vindictive reasons or are just cruel (laughs) or or do you or do you just like is there a constitutional amendment that says you are not allowed to represent yourself in court because (laughs) that seems like a little scary (laughs) i mean so one, one of the things that and i'm not sure if it's common among other bar associations so i can only speak to florida but like florida has the pro bono fund where basically um you can either give money to the Florida Bar as a member of the Florida Bar, or you dedicate a certain number of hours to pro bono service, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that self-represented litigants should get some form of legal aid or direction in terms of, you know, what are the bound or boundaries of you know what you're supposed to present, I guess, and, uh-huh. and what's relevant and what's not. Um, and, you know, I, I, I represented myself in child custody situations mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, it, it took, it took some learning, but I eventually figured it out. But I also had the benefit of, I have a solid education background and a lot of support from family. So, you know, I was able to do it. A lot of people can't. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it is access to on a limited basis, legal assistance. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I think there should be a, a, I I honestly, I don't know. I think the checklist would be useful at least to divert the, the extreme cases. Uh And I mean, I know it can probably be frustrating for judges too, to try to parse through every ounce of case law that might be relevant to that case because they don't have the benefit of an attorney being like, yes, this case law exists and this is why it works. <laughs> yeah. So I think it frustrates everyone, but they don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why I, I felt that the, or feel like the Gordian knot analogy is mm-hmm. like, just sever this whole puppy in. Well, that's a mixed <laughs> metaphor that doesn't really sound I was good. Like, oh boy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's been a long day. Or <laughs> it's only, crazy. It's only a quarter to six, and I'm. Oh goodness. Um, so, uh, <laughs> apologies for that. Um, so you had uh, mentioned that you had wanted to talk about being um, a working mom as sure. well. So um, I don't have any question <laughs> there. <laughs> I just I, I I figured you have you have something that you wanted to talk about. So yeah. So um, I. You know, while I am technically married, my husband does live nearly 500 miles away from where I am, Mm -hmm. and um, I've been a majority custodian, now primary custodian, to my now 10-year-old son, who's totally awesome, the entire time that I've been in school. And then while I was, it took me actually 10 years to get my bachelor's degree because I had him, Mm -hmm. like, in the middle of it, and... um, I was going to school full-time. I was a full-time mom, and I was working for the school district at the time that (laughs) I was also going to school. And so it was – there was a lot of caffeine consumed. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, was very fortunate that I had some strong role models in my department Mm -hmm. uh, where I got my bachelor's and my master's, which was West Florida – 
and um, who showed me that it is possible to be an academic and a mom. Um, and of course, they were junior faculty at the time. They've all since gotten tenure. Congratulations uh-huh. to them. And so I was very much encouraged to go for the thing. Mm -hmm. And then when I was starting to look as a potential PhD student, Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I would have to leave from where I, uh, from where I was. And that was a little bit scary to me. And so when I have worked with students in the past, I know that there are multiple things that they may be coming in with that their life isn't just school. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it should have to be. Um, you know, they're all generally 18 to 22, but of course you've got your non-traditional students, many mm-hmm. of whom will have kids or will be military or have military spouses or something like that. And to me, you know, when I go hopefully into the teaching world, please hire me, um, <laughs> then I, you know, in, in my past experience as running the internship program, you know, I'm cognizant that school doesn't have to be their life and while I do expect them to treat this as somewhat of a priority to be flexible in the in the idea that there's other things going on in the background whether it's mental health whether it's concerns over their own marriage like I've heard some people say like don't make your problems my problem and 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 there's some I, I I will say like I'm not a counselor and I get that but at the same time, like, it, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's very unfair that knowing that I myself have all kinds of things happening in the background that may affect my performance, that holding them to a completely different standard is not really fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it's wildly hypocritical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and, un- and unfair and- to everybody involved. Right. In terms of like fairness too, like you do, you should treat your students like adults. I, at the top of the recording, you'd mentioned like, you know, not calling them kids. Yes. (laughs) And and, I mean, it's hard for me because I I did work with actual children Children. before. Yeah. Um, and you know, I used to work in youth ministry. Somehow Mm -hmm. they, they let me around the church and, uh, we used to say, if you speak to the king and a person, a king will rise up. And if you speak to the fool and a person, a fool will rise up. Mm -hmm. And so if you sort of set that bar, I, I, I think it's, I've been happily surprised in some cases that they have risen to the, the standard that I held them to, but that standard doesn't have to be one that causes them if that makes sense. Yes, it absolutely does. I think that's a, a very wise teaching philosophy to have, in part because it sounds so similar to my own. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, no, when I when I started working at Wilkes, like um, almost immediately, like my department chair um, has kind of like made fun of me for the lines I've had outside of my outside of my office door of students waiting. <laughs> yeah, you're popular. What can you say? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um waiting for somebody who actually like gives a rip about their problems. Um mm-hmm. just to come and like dump everything on my lap for five or ten minutes. And uh and I can either say like, wow, that sucks. I'm so <laughs> sorry for you. Or I can say this is what you're upset about. This is 
a nothing problem. (laughs) It's time to, it's time to grow up a little bit and life is way harder than this. And it's time to, so I, I still, um, I still stay in touch with some of the mentees that I had where, where I used to be. And, you know, one of them was flipping her biscuits, as we like to say about, um, (laughs) I am very Southern. No, I lived in Tampa for a year and sometimes I miss it. (laughs) I well, so I'm actually a Louisiana, like mostly raised there. I have uh-huh. a tattooed on my leg, like. Uh, <laughs> so, so, in case you ever get lost, I exactly. It's I can actually point to where I where I was raised, but um, that's okay. I grew up in Michigan, and so we do the thing with the mitten. Um, oh, yes. yeah. I, I we have a uh, a wonderful Fulbright scholar in our program who um, she's from Scotland. Uh-huh. And I told her that something was hotter than homemade sin or like uglier than homemade sin. And she looks at me like, what on God's green earth did you just say? <laughs> so sometimes I, I amp it up to 11. Like right now I'm, I am having this full conversation with full attention, but every once in a while, like glancing up at football ball scores. So like, <laughs> out of the South, that whole thing. But anyway, but I digress. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, so, so I was talking to one of my mentees about really dog um, about um, so she was saying, well, I have like 30 like lesson sets that I have to get done in the next, you know, two weeks. I'm like, cool. So you have 14 days to do 30 things. Let's divide that by two. And it's not as intimidating as it seems. Mm-hmm. And like when you break it down for people, like it doesn't take that long for us as, you know, older people. I'm not calling us old. I'm saying we're older. Um, I just turned 32. So I get to actually oh, watch. You're, <laughs> you're young. <laughs> you're um, but you're so of, young. You know, impose that wisdom of how do we break this down and make this seem less terrifying. Uh-huh. And I, I've had the benefit in the past of faculty who have been understanding enough about like they know I'm a mom. They know you know a lot of other circumstances in the background, and um, they really support uh, you know taking care of yourself in order to do what you need to do. Um, and I, I get to plug our department out at USF and they are fantastic about, uh, we unfortunately had a, a student pass away last year in our program and they brought in counseling for us. We had, you know, um, just a, a very, uh, we talk about being collegial, but it's very genuine that it feels like family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had offers of, you know, different funding and better weather locations or whatever, but ultimately it was the people. <laughs> that better I, weather locations in South Florida. I, I, I hate the heat. I hate oh, the okay. <laughs> but you're Louisiana. I, I in St. Louis, so I've okay. experienced other seasons. I was going to say, like, you've got this <laughs> Louisiana tattoo and you're like, but actually, I'm longing <laughs> for the balmy Louisiana winters. <laughs> <laughs> Come so, on! <laughs> I, I I I went to San Francisco for ASC, and I'm just like living for the 70 degree weather. I'm like, what is this? My hair stays the way I made it this morning. 
<laughs> but um, so so yeah, it's um, ultimately I chose my department because of the people, and I knew that mm-hmm. those the my tribe would be the most important um, uh, ingredient, I guess, to my success. Mm-hmm. Yes, my you know my work ethic or whatever plays a role, but mm-hmm. if I'm surrounded by a difficult environment, then it's not going to be super productive. It's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be like a generational shift that's been happening in, in our field, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not as crazy competitive as it used, as it used, as it used to be, you know, mm-hmm. and there's not as much, I mean, there is, there still is elitism, but I think it's starting to erode some. I think that and part of it, like, I don't want to use this as a soapbox, but let's just say that the the major professional institutions haven't exactly done a lot to engender a whole lot of confidence in them lately. I, I, I definitely heard the horror stories of like different experiences in grad mm. school, and it didn't necessarily happen at like a single department or whatever. But I, I've heard horror stories of mm-hmm. how the environment that you're in, like people back when they didn't have the internet tearing out, you know, articles from journals so that you couldn't use it for whatever you were doing. And it's like, no, I, I'm in a cohort of four and like, we all study different things, but Mm -hmm. like if we come across an article, I I love how we express love in academia. Like I came across this article. I think it's related to your work here. (laughs) And, um, and it's so supportive. Like, um, and I think that it starts in your grad experience from what I'm told, Mm -hmm. um, it starts in your grad experience and, and you build and engender a um, kind of a reputation for not being a jerk. And that, that hopefully doesn't leave you getting taken advantage of, but it, you know, hopefully bodes well for the future that you get around other not jerk people. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think those things are, are mutually exclusive either. Right. <laughs> right. Like it's not, it's not, you're either like, this naive Pollyanna who just fell off the back of a truck and is like, I'm going to start teaching now. Um, please take advantage of me in every conceivable way. Or you are this like Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> We're really throwing it back. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, what do you expect? I'm old. <laughs> I thought, I, 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 listen, my husband is actually old. <laughs> but, no, it's I, I I agree. I, I, I don't think you're like either or and, and you know, I'm I'm about about five plus years older than the other people in my cohort and it's uh-huh. like at times I um that that age gap it, it's not that much of an age gap, but it definitely feels like that life experience and stuff like uh-huh. they they're having roommate problems or uh-huh. they're having like issues with I, I don't even know what issues you have at twenty-five <laughs> not being hung over. Like <laughs> Let's talk about all of their problems as we wrap up the show. This like this is your chance to air your grievances with everybody else in the cohort. Like we wouldn't believe what they're up to. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, well, so like I, I've had a relatively like stable situation. I um okay, my dog has joined the conversation again. That's all right. Um, 
speaking of stability, but, you know, I don't have to worry about that. The only issue on my, my plate is, you know, do I get my work done? And mm -hmm. do I, you know, does my kid finish a science fair project on time? Which so far the answer is no. Uh-oh. <laughs> what is a science fair project going to be? Um, so it's actually for, they do STEM fair at his school. Okay. And last year we baked cookies with different kinds of sugar and forced everyone in our department to eat the cookies and rate the cookies oh. and describe them. And then this year we are having people play the first level of, um, Mario world, the original, uh -huh. Um, and we are timing them and looking at age and gender and whether they are right or left-hand dominant and if they're a beginner, intermediate, or expert. And his teacher, I'm at the parent-teacher conference, like, saying, okay, well, we have to control for this. We're going to have them play <laughs> on the same switch. And, and I would like to have an end of, like, 40 to at least, like, Miss Harper, <laughs> I hate to tell you, this is a STEM fair project. <laughs> I'm like, but, but generalizability. <laughs> but I did teach my son how to like do some nifty stuff in Excel, and he's excited yeah. about that. And um, he tried to use a pie chart, and I got a little upset because I'm told that pie charts are like not okay. Really? <laughs> so. Uh oh. Bless his heart. <laughs> this poor kid's going to grow up, like, hearing about, you know, regression and face validity. And he's, I, he, um, my son's kind of the, the main reason I get anything done. <laughs> but he's, he's totally cool. My son's on, on the spectrum, and, like, mm -hmm. it's made me super aware of how I explain certain things to people. Uh -huh. Because I make sure to cover all my bases. Yeah. So that it doesn't go off and like do or ask someone something inappropriate. And, um, so he, um, you know, he will tell you everything that you would want to know about Minecraft or Pokemon. And I have to explain to people or to him that you don't have to tell everybody uh, in line at the grocery store today about your top five favorite Pokemon. And they're, whether they're water. Uh -huh. Thank you, son. But, you know, he's, um, he's so encouraging and it, it makes him so happy. I did the great American teach in last year to his class, mm -hmm. um, where I went and talked about like, I, <laughs> I said, do you like to find the answers to questions? Do you like solving puzzles? And do you want to go to school forever? And all of them, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I told them about, like, different adventures I've gotten to go on at conferences and then showed them wonderful pictures of me sleeping in libraries, <laughs> which they got a kick out of. And, um, but, yeah, that's been super cool. Like, he'll read his book, like, propped up on my back um, while I'm also getting my work done on my tablet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's been a lot of fun. Like, it's it can be stressful um, yeah. to be a single parent in school mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if – if his school doesn't have school on a Monday or whatever, they've got a lot of holidays. I'd find a $40 babysitter to keep him while I'm in class. Although there are some, some teachers who will allow him to, you know, come in with his tablet or whatever and sit there. But, you know, I can't take night classes because yeah. he has a routine and I can't just get any old babysitter to help. Although I will say our department is fantastic about volunteering to help. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. He has a lot of aunts and uncles in the department. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but um, but yeah, that that again speaks to the whole like tribe thing that you know I I hate to give unsolicited advice to you know parents and looking at a PhD, mm-hmm. but again, it matters the environment of the department you go into. And I had the benefit of there are two other uh, parents in actually had three in our four. Okay, the numbers rising. There are several parents. <laughs> And that are also students in our department, and I've seen them be successful, and that was a really good thing to see and know how they were encouraged. Like, one gave birth, and then three weeks later submitted a paper that won the uh, life course criminology paper of the year for a student. Like, literally gave birth and then submitted this paper. Wow. I was like, really? Okay, that sets a bit of a high bar. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, so it can be done. It's not always easy, yeah. but it helps to have your tribe. <laughs> yes. You've got good people around you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's, um, let's wrap up on one more like arrested development, blah, blah, blah. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, reference. If you've got, if you've got anything, um, I, otherwise I we, otherwise we can edit it out and we can just go to like a traditional, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so oh, we're not here to talk nonsense, blah blah blah. <laughs> actually, so it's actually a wildly inappropriate one. It's uh, Tobias Funke and his attempts to join the Blue Man Group. Of course, I have blue hair, mm-hmm. and so anytime I, I so you've had a couple of people who are in this uh, this group. With me, you've had uh, Joan and, and, and Jan and Francis, and we're all in this group. And anytime mm-hmm. I, I redo my hair, I always text them the GIF of Tobias Funke. <laughs> I just blew myself. myself. <laughs> what you need to do is get a recorder and record yourself and just listen. <laughs> oh, Tobias, you blow hard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming on to the show, Sarah. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was great. <laughs>